Hey, everybody, you are listening to the No Shortage of Questions podcast. Uh, my name is Nick, and I am here, as always, with my good friend Andy. Andy, how are you doing today? Hey, Nick, how are you doing? Good to hear your voice. Good to be here. So this is take two. We uh, we had started our podcast uh, a couple hours ago, and Andy was in the middle of saying the most brilliant thing I had ever heard anyone <laughs> say, and the power, the power in our church office just went off. And so uh, we are trying to figure out why the, our city has told us that uh, there's like 3,000 businesses and homes that it's affected. So I have relocated to my house. So I'm doing it from my house now. So if I sound a little different, that's why. And if you hear a dog barking, that's because the mailman is bringing something. So I apologize for that. But uh, we are excited because we are starting a new book of the Bible today. We are starting First John and we will be uh, studying First John chapter 1 today. Uh, but we've said in the past that if you have a question, email us at the no shortage podcast at gmail.com, and we will answer a question before we get started. And we actually do have a question, a question that came in not through email, but uh, through my daughter, my four-year-old daughter. She wanted to know who created God. Hmm. And I thought that was a, a really good question. And so... Uh, Andy, kind of putting you on the spot today. Uh, who created God? How would you answer that question? I've had four-year-olds twice, and I don't know quite how to answer that. I mean, we could begin with John 1, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and give this big kind of existential kind of answer that God was in the beginning, and there wasn't anything preceding God. And it's so easy to break into speculation on those things. Uh, but I don't have an answer beyond that. Who created God? God was and God is. And beyond that, we don't know. So, Nick, as a fabulous father like you are, what did you tell your daughter? I said, how dare you ask such a difficult question on when I'm off work? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> when you're off work. Uh, uh, and I uh, I said, well, you know, nobody created God. God, uh, uh, God is the creator, and God created all of us, and God has just always been. And so uh, I know it's difficult for us to understand, but uh, but God ha- you know has just always existed. And so we want to know how, because everything that existed was created by something or someone, uh, but uh, but God is different. And so we, we don't really know the answer to the question. We just trust that God has always been there and God will always be there. You know, that is kind of the cool thing that happens when we're kids. We want to know, you know, where did everything come from and, and why is the sky blue and all of that sort of stuff. And there's a beautiful just sort of curiosity and inquisitiveness that comes out of that. And as we get older, we stop asking at least some of those questions. And I wonder if that's... Do, is that because we lose curiosity? Is that a sign of just trusting that there are things that we don't know or that are beyond us? I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure on that. Or do we just get too busy, caught up thinking about other things that we just don't take the time to reflect and to ask the the deep questions anymore? Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you, thinking about this question, everything around us, everything in this that we can see in this world was created, right? It was created by someone or something, the mountains and, you know, the valleys created by rivers and, and all the, and, and, you know, created by God. But is there anything that 
exists that wasn't created is kind of what I was going um, and, and wondering, you know, you create something good like love. The complete opposite of love is that also created at the same time as a byproduct like hate. Are there things that were created by mistake or were there things that were created as an opposite of something else that uh, that, w- that we can't explain where it came from or why it's here, but but it's still here? You know, you're uh, by accident, perhaps, entering into the subjects of First John, which ha- speaks of light quite a bit. And uh, that darkness is not something distinct from light. Darkness is just the absence of light. So that's one take on that. They're not opposites. Darkness is just the oppos- the absence of light. Yeah, yeah. That's a good segue into First John. So uh, thank you, Andy. That's a, a good way of putting it. Uh, so, so just a little background before we jump into First John. And first, First John chapter one is only ten verses, so we're going to uh, do our best to to draw it out as long as we can. But um, John is written at a time most scholars believe it's written around a hundred A.D. Uh, so it's about sixty-five to seventy years after Jesus is crucified, and it's about just for context purposes about forty to forty-five years after Philippians was written. And so things have settled down now. The church is kind of uh, building roots or, and uh, you know, growing and doing different things. And, and kind of uh, you're looking at second and third generation Christians. And so the thrills of the first day have kind of worn off, but there's also little evidence that the church was being persecuted uh, to the level that it was 50 years earlier uh, in that, you know, violence where the, the Christians were really being um hunted down seems to have seems to have stopped so so it's a it's a different time and uh, and so John is writing to a church that is more interested in the philosophical side of things the intellectual side of things and so that's where we start with verse one Andy would you go into that for us? sure uh, one quick comment first on the background that you were naming which is also that there were kind of theological almost philosophical uh, differences that were forming in the church as well and one of the commentaries I read, Barclay, talked about how Gnosticism uh, was kind of entering in, and some of the core understanding, initial early understandings of Christian faith were being challenged by outside uh, thinking. And so that's kind of the background, an additional piece in the background. Verse 1 of First John 1 says this, We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. John claims to have heard Jesus, to have seen Jesus, which would make him old, to have touched Jesus. There was a group called the Docetists who claimed that Jesus was a phantom and never at any time had body or flesh. The trouble in this letter is not that people were trying to destroy the faith, but that people were trying to improve it by making Christianity intellectually respectable through adding current philosophical ideas, such as those I just named, Gnosticism. Is it Docetism? Yeah, Docetism. I think, and John was refuting them. And is Christianity intellectually respectable, do you think, Nick? Does it make sense? Can you explain, can we explain what we believe. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so is Christianity intellectually respectable? Uh, some of the, the people you talk to who struggle with the faith struggle with it because 
it's hard for them to understand. It's hard for them to make sense of this story of redemption and the story of God entering our brokenness and dying for us. Um, one of my friends who, uh, who I was talking to about faith said, well, I just, I just always thought religion was for people with weak minds. And, um, and so does, does faith make sense? And uh, so I, I was reading a book last summer by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, I believe the title was Astrophysics for People in a Hurry trying to make sense of mm. the universe. Oh, I love and, it. And so he, he did a, a really good job of explaining the Big Bang and, and how everything started. And, and they say that scientists can, can explain everything up to the first millionth of a second or the first 10 millionth of a second. But there's always that at the very, very beginning, at the very, very beginning, the thing, there's something that happened that they can't explain. And, and they've tried and they've done everything they can. And, and, and I read that book and I read the scientific evidence of, of the Big Bang and, 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 and I see God's fingerprints in it. I see God at the very beginning. And so, you know, we can talk about science and we can go back to the very beginning of all things. And then you can say that, but there's still that millionth of a second that we don't understand. And for me, that's where I say, well, let me tell you about God. <laughs> Let me tell you about the creator, the one who said, who spoke this all into being. And so, um, yeah, it, it's difficult to understand, I think, this story without looking at it through a lens of faith because it doesn't make a lot of sense. And there's days for me that it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so one of the things that I that I lean on, uh, Andy, have you ever heard of the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Ha, I've heard of it. I couldn't tell you the slightest about it. Yeah, so it is um, it is the, the Methodist quadrilateral, or it's attributed to John Wesley. I don't know if it actually came from him or not. But uh, so for, for them, faith is like a four-legged stool. Uh, and so the understanding of faith comes from uh, this stool, and there's four different legs. Uh, the first leg is reason, our ability to understand something. The second is experience, the things we experience in life, the emotions that we have at a worship service or something that, you know, this experience where we we experience God in our midst. Uh, the third is tradition, the church tradition. And fourth is scripture. And scripture is, I mean, you could say like that it's a three-legged stool and scripture is what it's based on or built on. But um, I, I lean on that a lot because there's days where, you know, it's hard to it's hard for me in my mental reasoning to to uh, accept some things that are just beyond, uh, you know, beyond understanding. And so there's days where I lean on the tradition of the church. And this is one of the you know, John claims to have seen Jesus. John claims to have touched Jesus. He's heard Jesus. He is a witness. He you know, he was there when Jesus was resurrected. He was a witness to all of these things. And you look at the disciples and how prior to Jesus's death, they had all run away. They were afraid. They were, they were trying to save themselves. But once Jesus uh, rose again and appeared to them and uh, breathed the Holy Spirit upon them, the, the, the things that these men and, and women who joined uh, were able to do and, and the, the way that they, you know, to a man, uh, to, they all gave their lives for the faith as the disciples. You know, all the disciples died horrible deaths because of their faith, because they were just so certain that this was true, that they were willing to die for it. Uh, so to me, there's, you know, the, the power of the witnesses of the first 
the first generation of Christians, those who knew Jesus and saw him. I, I think um, I can't when, when I can't explain it when I, when it's difficult for me to understand. Uh, I can lean on 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 their on their witness and and uh, and their deaths. The you know the way that the way that they gave their life for the faith. So. Um, but it is difficult at times intellectually to to make sense of it all. What do you think, Andy? Well, just a response to a couple of things that you talked about. Uh, you know, science not being able to fully explain creation and all the rest of it. Uh, I think absolutely there's always a sign of intelligent design that goes beyond what we can understand or know. I mean, that's just kind of baked into the creation and that's a that's a helpful piece for for understanding verses on creation. I mean, you go things like the Psalms, et cetera, about where what is the origin of things, and we just can't explain it, nor can we reproduce it, nor can we fully understand it outside of something intelligent design, uh, something that brings order to the randomness. I mean, the human body itself uh, is just, I mean, w- amazing. And uh, uh, the complexity of biology just points to something beyond itself. We're beyond matter, uh, and we're beyond randomness. And I think that, you know, is a strong argument. It's not the only argument. It's not a conclusive argument for the existence of God. But, I mean, it certainly points that direction. It's kind of like it's, you know, harder to be an atheist than to be a believer in a way uh, I've heard that said before, simply because you know atheism is just a different faith. It's and and faith in God. He is faith in the one who has come to us, who loves us. Who, I mean, it's more difficult to not believe in God than to believe in God for many of us, at least. Yeah, and and I think one of the one of the thi- one of the challenges for for having faith today is wanting to do kind of what the Docetists were doing, is to say. You know, yeah, we have these stories of Jesus doing incredible things, but um, let's figure out ways so that we can make sense of it. And so I don't know if you've heard people try to people try to talk through some of the miracles of Jesus and kind of explain, give a, a, a reasonable explanation for how that thing happened. Like when Jesus fed 5,000 people, you, you hear the stories of, well, Jesus didn't really feed 5,000 people. He, he sat down and he broke bread and he was go- starting to give some away. And then people... All of a sudden, people started pulling food out of their pockets and handing food out, and and I, and I always mm-hmm. I hear these things and I say to people, let, let, why do we need to do that? Why do we need to take the miracles of Jesus and make them, uh, you know, that the, well, the, well, the true miracle here is the generosity of the people. Why don't we just allow Jesus to be the be the guy who does the miracle? Uh, why, why do we need to try and explain some of the things that he did uh, so that it makes more sense for us? I just I prefer to believe in the mystery. I prefer to believe in a God who does things that I can't understand, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, mystery is a huge piece of it all. I think it's hard for people who've not had a supernatural experience to understand a supernatural experience because it's outside of their worldview. And uh, a second piece is, I think in the day of Jesus, a supernatural worldview was almost a given uh, I've read and heard this discussed, I'm trying to think of the best description of it, but a spirit world, a world in which uh, there was an understanding that uh, there was a power at work beyond what you could see, experience, touch, and feel, uh, was very much a given. 
And uh, a third piece is, I mean, people are just, you know, you know, boxed in by their own narrow view of the world, and it takes an experience beyond that for them to understand. And often when people have a ex- uh, supernatural experience of one sort or another, say, listen, I can't explain it. I know it goes against the laws of, you know, science or gravity or logic or whatever they want to say, uh, but just trust me, this is what I experienced. I've had people in my office telling me, hey, I don't, I can't explain it. I don't know what to say about it. I'm just telling you what happened and what I saw. And uh, kind of wild, you know. It's kind of like God or at least the work of the Spirit is out there uh, doing stuff that, you know, is beyond our everyday kind of normal expectation. Yeah. Yeah, and some of those are really big things, and some of those are really little things. And I think, uh, you know, the little things we say, well, that was just a coincidence, or that was just, uh, but, but I would, you know, I would suggest that we've all had something supernatural happen in our life. We just probably don't recognize it. Yeah, there, there are some Christian traditions that talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, and they try and help people to understand it as kind of the naturally supernatural. In other words, supernatural component is just natural to the Christian faith. And uh, maybe we don't realize it, but we're kind of affirming that even when we pray. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, let's move on to verse 5. John writes, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So this idea that God is light, like we were talking about uh, earlier, light and light and darkness. So darkness stands for the life apart from God for the, uh, you know, this idea that light and darkness are kind of natural enemies, that darkness is hostile to light. Darkness, if we go to Genesis chapter one, kind of darkness prior to the creation is just this chaos. Uh, we could say that darkness today is immorality, the life which which seeks the shadows, which prefers the shadows. Uh, and maybe we could even say darkness is, represents the absence of love. It's it is the the other side of the coin from God. From all the things that God would say, could 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 desire, darkness represents the opposite. So, how do we combat or avoid walking in darkness? You know, I don't know if we can combat it. I don't even know if we can really avoid it. Uh, but I think that God, the nature of God is light, and God when God's presence is with us, brings light to the darkness that we experience. And just wherever God is going to be, that's going to bring good news. It's going to bring light. It's going to, I mean, it's a beautiful metaphor, as we talked about earlier, that there is light and darkness is simply the absence of light. And um, so how can we avoid walking in darkness? I think it's by, you know, sticking close to the light and that sounds so simple, uh, but sticking close to the Spirit, sticking close to God, sticking close to, I mean, bringing, hearing, experiencing the good news in our midst. I'm, I'm having trouble finding words for it, uh, but it's almost like the role of preaching to bring light into darkness, to, to see and hear the good news that God has for people who have fallen short, for people who are searching, people who are hurting, people that are suffering people who want something beyond what they have now. Uh, I mean, I mean that's found that the light brings that to us, helps us see what it is we need. Uh, that's, that's kind of my... What are your thoughts on it, Nick? Yeah, I think that part of the, the avoiding it is, 
you know, obviously obedience to God is something that's important. If you, if you obey what God would have you do, then you would, um, you would live a life, live a, a life that reflects the light. Uh, I think about the, the power of the people you, you hang out with, you know, if you, the, the people you surround yourself with, uh, do you surround yourself with people who you admire for their, uh, their character, uh, the way that they interact with the world? But um, the reality is, I think we, I think we naturally like the darkness. I think we feel safer there. Uh, I think, you know, when we're in the darkness, no one can see us. You know, we're not as vulnerable in the darkness. Uh, and I, I think that we, if if we had our, if we had our way, we would prefer to live our life kind of at dawn or at dusk where we live kind of on the on the border between the light and the dark and and we can venture off into the darkness when that's what we feel called to do or called to be and we can venture back into the light uh, when we when we want to do that as well and so we kind of live at this place of dusk where we're always we're always close to the darkness we can always run back where we you know feel safe and comfortable Uh, but then there's the, the times where we're drawn into the light and and those times when we're in the light feel right. This, you know, makes sense. But at the same time, you know, we, we don't stay there. We don't stay there because of the vulnerability, because of, you know, the opening up of ourselves. When, you know, when we're called to love our neighbor, we're called to do things that make us uncomfortable. We're called to open our doors to people uh, without really knowing them that well. Uh, and we're called to see the best in people. We're called to look for the best in people, to trust people, uh, knowing, though, that, that people hurt people. And so, you know, it's it's... Uh, it's easy to to rely on on the darkness, you know, the 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 selfishness, the the greed, the comfort, the the things that give us comfort. The, uh, and so, you know, it's easy to close out any anyone and and anything that would be difficult in our lives. And so, I think I think we like to stay right where we can see the light and where we can see the dark, and um, and, and we kind of go back and forth each and every day. Yeah, just a number of responses to what you're talking about. That's often the we're talking about who we spend time with because it will impact our character, our understanding, who we become. That's often the challenge for parents. Who, What schools do I want them to go to so that they're hanging out with a particular type of person? Uh, what friends do I want them to have so that the values of those friends, you know, rub off on our kids? Uh, often that's what we're thinking about that. And there's a tension, I think, with that attitude uh, compared to, you know, the other attitude, which is the invitation for Christians to do evangelism, to hang out with people and spend time investing in people who are far from God and who don't know God at all, uh, who who would never uh, see themselves, understand themselves as a person of faith. It's kind of this this notion of, of uh, you know, fellowship community, being around people that are going to reinforce particular values, Versus our call to be in the world among people who don't know Christ so that we can witness to them for Christ. Uh, just uh, noting that kind of peace, hanging out with people. Well, it's not, it's not even just hanging out with people in person now. It's with social media and with, you know, how do you protect your kids from the predators who are online and oh, yeah. the people who, who, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you, you, you want to protect them by keeping them at home or to, by making sure you know who they're hanging out with, but you also have to, you know, watch, watch what they do with their phones and with all that other stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's scary. Some of the things that, uh, that you hear. 
The other piece that you mentioned was kind of, you know, the light shining on the darkness and maybe our preference to live in the dusk where there's not quite so much light. I mean, the holiness of God, one of the metaphors, images for that is lighting the bright light, the bright light that brings light to our darkness. Heard a sermon illustration on that once from a pastor who was talking about building a brand new building. And they were doing one of the final inspection walks, and, and they had a spotlight with them, and they were pointing up at the ceiling and saying, hey, look, no, those are flaws, those are mistakes, those are issues, you need to repair those, those are not acceptable. And the you know contractors came right back with, no, wait a second, got to read your documents better, because this inspection is only flaws that are visible in normal lighting conditions, and you are shining the bright light of, you know, outside of normal conditions. We, we sort of want to live in normal conditions. We want to live in such a way where some of the flaws and some of our shortcomings just don't quite show. And the holiness of God brings that into full view. The holiness, the brightness, the light of God shining into our darkness makes everything visible. And it points us to our need for Christ, to our need for forgiveness, to our need for redemption, uh, you know, for healing, uh, uh, just lots of things that we don't want to see and that which we can ignore in normal lighting conditions, that the bright light of Christ coming into our darkness kind of just shows us and reveals to us. Yeah, that's a scary thought of that kind of vulnerability, <laughs> right? That kind of, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are no secrets with God. And uh, yeah. And it's kind of, it's the holiness of God. It's, I mean, in, I'm in a church where the old tradition here, going way back, was to sing holy, holy, holy at the beginning of every worship service. Fascinating. It was the old Augustana Synod. And when I first came here, there were some old-timers who still remembered that and were always advocating for that to come back. But they said it really set the tone of worship, who God is, who we are, coming into the presence of God, understanding our own need for God, understanding our own need for sanctification to be made holy. Uh, uh, it was really, you know, that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about light shining into our darkness. And in the, uh, kind of in the culture today, there's kind of this, I'm fine, I don't need to, you know, even hear about any of my flaws or my fallenness. I'm good, you're good, we're okay, we're all okay. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, maybe a downside to that where we fail to see or recognize God's calling upon our life. Just a, a quick question, side question. How old is Cambridge Lutheran, and how, what's the longest member you have there? How long would you say they've been there? We had somebody, I think 103, that recently died, and the church itself is, I think, 154, 155 years old this year, I think. That's That's really cool. Yeah, isn't that amazing? We have some people in their 80s and 90s that have been here the whole time. But wow, well, I think uh, you know, I think this is part of this is part of the theme of First John. And he goes, uh, you know, I think he he starts to talk about the darkness and the light, and then from there he jumps into uh, into talking about sin. And I think that's all part of the same conversation themes that are connected. Uh, you know, starting in like verses eight and nine. So, Andy, would you jump into those? Yeah, and this is, uh, people that are from a Lutheran background will probably recognize these verses, and they're kind of uh, part of uh, page 56 in the old green book, the Lutheran Book of Worship, the LBW. And this is from 1 John, verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we say that we don't have any sin, we're kind of lying. And John calls us to confess our sins, to claim forgiveness. And for John, the essence of the Christian life is to first confess our need for Christ, our sins, then allow God to wipe away our past, which makes our future new. And uh, we are so good at making excuses, rationalizing everything we do. Are we even aware of sin? And do we think that sin matters? Are there consequences for sin? Nick, any responses to those questions? Yeah, I, I find it's interesting that this is part of the um, LBW liturgy. This is part of our liturgy every Sunday. We start every worship service with a confession, yeah, yeah. and this is the invitation into confession. You know, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, I say that yeah. twice every Sunday. Um, but the idea of, you know, so good at making excuses and rationalizing what we do, are we even aware of our sins? So, so the invitation to confession is, I say this, you know, uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins... You know, and then I, there's the pause, right? The, the pause for reflection. And so that time where we ask our, the members of our congregation to reflect on their sins. And, uh, and it's always a difficult part for me because how long do I pause for? You know, when I was on internship, I would just count. <laughs> I would count to 10 and then think, well, that, that's probably long enough. But I wasn't reflecting on my <laughs> hey, you sins. Were counting. Right? I was just, I was just, counting i was creating a space for people and uh and i had one uh, uh one teacher i remember i went to a, a lutheran high school and he said that in that time he always wished that they would uh, give more time to think about ah, their sin. he, he wow, always wished yeah. that his church would give him more time uh, to think about his sins to think about his need for god uh and so i sit back there now on sunday mornings right in front of the baptismal font and do this and i try to think about my sins and on Sunday morning, when I've got the sermon in my mind, you know, and I just finished the announcements, and it's it's hard for me to come up with more than two or three things. And and I know that I sin more than two or three times a week, right? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it, when I'm going through my week and I do something that I shouldn't or think something that I shouldn't or say something that I shouldn't, I'm not real good at saying, oh, that was a sin. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just not part of... It's just not part of my normal day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, what's going on in my mind. And so it's something I, you know, we struggle with, I think, to, to make excuses. We rationalize. We make excuses. You know, the, I didn't help that person because I was in a hurry and I couldn't be late. I didn't help that person because I, you know, was doing something for my family. I, or I was, uh, you know, I, I told a lie, but, you know, it's for the better. You know, it was, you know, to, so that I don't hurt anyone's feelings, so I don't offend anyone. And, uh, you know, there's always a good reason to do something bad. There's always a good reason to do the wrong thing. And, and I, you know, the question in the big picture of life, do our sins even matter? You know, obviously some of the big sins we could, uh, we could destroy our family by making, you know, poor moral decisions. Uh, but there's so many little sins, the little sins that, uh, that we just don't pay that much attention to that, you know, the, the small lies that we tell, uh, you know, do those, do we realize that that has an effect on our life and, and how do those sins affect our life? How does that affect our relationship with God? Uh, you know, we could, you could come across as being a great person, but you, you know, you could, you could commit a lot of little sins that, that nobody will ever catch you on. You know, you'll never be called out on, uh, 
but what effect do they have on our lives and, and on our relationships? What do you think, Andy? So you're talking about the damage that sin does. You're talking about sins of omission, sins of commission, things that we do or don't do. Uh, one follow-up question to that would be, is sin a condition that we're in, or is it just things that we do or don't do? Yeah, so sin with the capital S versus sins with the little s, you know, the the, the hundred things we do each day or just the capital S to say that we are yeah, just yeah. the condition of, of humanity is sin, capital mm-hmm. S-I-N. And um, it's, uh, yeah, you can look at it a couple different ways. I, I probably look at it as the, um, you know, the list of bad things that I do is kind of the uh, adding up all the, the ways in which I fall short. Uh, but if you look at if you look at the sin, the big S, you know the the sins of mankind, the sins of the world. Uh, you know, I think I think John is going to talk about that in the coming chapters. Um, you know that that if we look at sin individually and, and take responsibility for those things individually, we may miss out on the larger picture, which is uh, you know that that Christ died for the sins of all, and you know when when Christ died, Christ died. Uh, to change the nature of humanity from from the capital S sin to you know the the righteous that that God chose to see us as righteous and so God changes our nature uh, but um, you know I still think there's there's a call and you know this is this isn't really the gospel right this is the but there is a call to to try and do better to try and speak the truth, to try and do our best to help our neighbors to, you know, to not lie, to not cheat, to not steal, to not murder, uh, to, you know, obey what God would have us, uh, to, to be the people God would have us be. You know, back in the 90s when uh, the language about uh, how we come before God in confession was being debated, uh, I remember conversation about the language we confess that we are in bondage to sin, which is one of the uh, liturgical settings and the language we are captive to sin. And there were a number of theologians at Luther talked about how we are captive to sin and cannot free ourselves as being a better, uh, a better approach, better language, better understanding captive to sin. I, I don't remember the distinctives, but it was fascinating to hear them discuss how Simply the difference of those two words, we're in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves, we are captive to sin and cannot free ourselves, helps us understand who we are in God's presence. Sounds like a classic professor-theologian thing to debate the finer points of the word we use. But I think what they're getting at is it's God alone who can free us from being captive to sin. And our inclination is always going to be, I need to try harder, do more, I need to free myself. And I think it's that reminder that it's redemption, forgiveness is through Christ alone. And so, um, you know, just naming that. Yeah. Um, you know, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Uh, some of the background on that verse came out of the, again, the Gnostic discussions where there were people within the early church about 100 AD that were saying that if they can just be get if they could get just beyond their need, their desire, their want for material goods, they were basically beyond sin. And um, uh, the early church was just basically pushing back against that. 
and saying, no, uh, that's, that's not actually accurate. It was really interesting, and I think this happens today, about how different philosophies, schools of thought kind of work their way into Christian thinking, Christian theology. I think it's almost impossible for it not to happen. And um, part of the emphasis pushing back against that in First John is that, no, the real sign of Christian faith you know, is not being without sin, but is it, are you loving your brothers and sisters? Are you loving your neighbor uh, as yourself? Are we living in unity and community with one another? Uh, that's one of the themes that emerges out of First John. Uh, the sign is not, are you the super Christian? But the sign is really, can you love and live at peace with your sister and brother, even the sister and brother that you disagree with? Yeah, you know, just reading this, to, to, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I think about the the rich young guy who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, don't sin, keep the law. And he says, well, I've done that. Oh, and, yeah, and I, wow, yeah. Uh, and I wonder how many people uh, specifically in the early church came from that um came from that teaching that, you know, they had done all that they had to do in their life, that they had followed the law to a T and that they had done everything. And, and, you know, and, and on a, on the day of atonement, their sins have been forgiven, but they didn't really have anything to be sorry for because they had been trained the right way and they had done all that they needed to do. Uh, and so for John to say this, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, meaning that, you know, there were people who were going to read this who thought that they were without sin. Uh, and so, to name that, hey, no, we are all sinful, every one of us. It doesn't matter. You know, it goes back to the Paul thing. I was, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Um, and uh, and even I needed Jesus to save me. And so it's, I think there's part of it is to say that, hey, you, you are in need of grace. You cannot, in any way, shape, or form, claim your salvation, uh, claim your right relationship with God because of anything that you've done. Uh, and so. You know, there is, I think it. this is part of the reflect the self-reflection to say, yeah, well, uh, okay, I can, I can agree to doing some of those things, some things that I shouldn't have done. Uh, and, but also I love this, that it's that, you know, as you said, when, that we can claim forgiveness because it's, you know, we can, we can admit our sins and then claim our forgiveness. We can say that forgiveness is mine, that I am now, that God has wiped away my past and I can now look to a bright new future. I have this member of church who says, uh, he says, when, when does God forgive our sins? And I hmm. said, well, and, and he said, well, I, I believe, because uh, we, we were talking about communion and, and how in, you know, in, in, in the Eucharist, we know we have the promise of the forgiveness of sins. Uh, but he says, I, I believe that God forgives my sin as soon as I commit it. That, you know, yeah, that God has, okay. has, has taken care of the sins of, of all of humanity. And as soon as I commit it, God has forgiven it because that is what God has chosen to do. That forgiveness is more about God deciding to forgive than it is about us doing whatever we have to do to finally earn that forgiveness. We can't earn God's favor, right? But we can earn the forgiveness because of the, you know, the certain steps we take or certain prayers we pray. But he said, no, I believe that I believe that my sins are forgiven as soon as I commit them. You know, that's an interesting take on that. I guess basically he's saying, do we need to ask for forgiveness then, or is it just all automatic? Is forgiveness automatic? Well, I, th I think there's, um, and, I, and I can't quote it now, but an Old Testament reference that says, and I will remember their sins no more. I will be their God and they will be my people and I will remember their sins yeah, no yeah. more. You know, it's, 
I don't think God wants to remember our sins. I don't think God wants to have this, um, I don't know, anger, frustration, whatever. I don't think God wants to carry that around. And so God chooses not to. Seems like, I mean, seems like that's, that's what the gospel is telling us. One of the, yeah, one of the pieces when I always meet with our 10th graders before they go through confirmation and I meet with some of them, not all of them, uh, and I ask him this question. I say, why does sin matter? So what? You sin? Big deal. Why? Why does that matter? And one of, you know, they're always kind of, oh, I don't know. You know, they're kind of really wondering about it, wrestling, trying to wonder what the official perfect answer is that will make the pastor happy. And part of what I tell them is because our people get hurt by our sin, the sins that we do, the sins, you know, of omission, things that we don't do. I mean, people are hurt, and those are people that God loves. Our sin matters, uh, and but God wants to forgive our sin. You're raising the point, is God's forgiveness automatic? Does God remember our sin? Um, yeah, I mean, I should have a theologically quick answer to that. I don't happen to have one myself. I gave a sermon once where I referred to God as the great forgetter. Okay, okay, Just, yeah. Um, but I, I think I think we're gonna. This subject is gonna come up again in First John, uh, so I think we could go deeper into that. But I want to tenth. You confirm people, and you confirm tenth graders. Yeah, we confirm in tenth grade. We used to do it in the eighth grade, and we found that they were, you know, really not at a point yet where we felt they were ready, and they weren't, you know, asking authentic questions. They were just jumping through all the hoops. And we also found that as soon as confirmation happens, they're like a lot of them, a high percentage, are done. And so we said, well, what can we do to keep them uh, later? So we just do it in the 10th grade, and we find that there's this culture in, in Lutheran churches where they just keep going until confirmation happens. So we just made it later, and we should make it on the senior year if we want to really when keep do they them, but, When do they start? Is it just yeah. a one-year thing? No, they start in seventh grade. So confirmation is uh, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, the full year. And, you know, it's classes and retreats and serving projects and worship notes. And then in the fall of the 10th grade year on on uh, Reformation Sunday, we do confirmation. Interesting. So yeah, We do eighth yeah. grade. Oh, you do eighth grade. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we used to back before. No, okay. <laughs> And one one other thought on that that's that's interesting to us is that Lutherans have the highest percentage of junior high middle school participation in their youth groups of any Protestant denomination, and they have the second lowest, according to one study I saw, as far as high school participation. So we thought, what can we do to maximize that? So we maximized it maximized it by doing, you know, just the middle school confirmation portion, just longer. The old school terminology for this was longer and later confirmation. You just make confirmation a longer experience. When I was growing up, confirmation was one year long, and then it was amazing, the drop-off rate. So it was in seventh grade when I was growing up. Wow, how, how long ago did you guys make that change? We made this change in about 2004, I don't know if this is interesting to anyone who's listening to this, but it's interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a seminary professor who used to say, it may not be interesting, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, it may not be interesting. But the, the other side of it is the bigger question I think everyone would connect with this is how do you keep your kids engaged, participating, 
uh, you know, just being present, being involved. And this is one of our ways, really, just to keep them in worship, keep them serving, keep them thinking, keep them in small groups. Uh, so it's just kind of our way of uh, uh, keeping them involved. How many kids do you typically have uh, involved in confirmation at any given time? We Our confirmation classes have a range of about 20 to 40 and I would say you said involved, that's per class. And um, I would say that typically grade seven, eight, nine, we have about 90 to 100 kids. Our confirmation class this year, I think was 21. And our confirmation class a year or two ago, I think was 40 something. So that's kind of the numbers we're dealing with. The downside with that is I, I get to know very few of them very well, or at least, you know, even know their names. The upside with that is you got lots of kids that have a lot of friends, and uh, you got lots of adults leading small groups. Cool, cool. Sounds like a great ministry. And uh, something for us to think about to extend it. What did, what did you say it later and... Longer and later longer and is later. the old school, uh, yeah, uh, description of that. So uh, that will be uh, First John... Chapter one, uh, talking about darkness and sin, and uh, and you know, like touching on the uh, how do we make sense of faith? How do we make sense? How do we, <clears throat> for those who struggle to make sense of it, how do we how do we make sense of it? How do we explain it to them? Uh, and so I think uh, I think it's good stuff. Uh, for, as I, you know, as we said in the past, First John is a very Lutheran book. A lot of our uh, liturgy comes from it, and so we look forward to touching on chapter two. Uh, will we have a podcast next week, Andy? It is the week of Christmas. Next Monday will we, be the 23rd. Yeah, I think, I think we should take Christmas off and do it after Christmas. I, I'm, I'm good taking it off. I just know that uh, uh, you have uh, an incredible amount of work ahead of you, as do I. And uh, so how many, how many services do you have between the uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday next week? Well, we're going to do eight on the 23rd, 24th, and 25th. So not and, each day, but total eight services over. And then you have how many days. on the Sunday and the twenty second? Twenty second, we have three. So that'll be what is 11, that, eleven total in four days. Eleven in four days, yeah. So you know, there'll be a lot of moving parts. <laughs> uh, you're, you're poor printer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, I, I'm staring at drafts that need to get printed here. You know, sitting on my desk right now, but. You know, one other comment on First John that's cool is that I think it's just a pastoral letter to young churches trying to figure out how to do life together. And that's probably why it's a helpful read for us today. Because outside, I mean, they're not really getting persecuted for their faith, but they're getting persecuted in a way from within the faith. There are outside influences and ideas that are really uh, are rising up within the ranks, and they're being challenged to figure out, well, hey, what do we really think, and why? And what is this Christian faith really all about? So, Yeah, yeah. And so look forward to uh, going into uh, Chapter 2 with you uh, probably in two weeks, and I uh, hope you have a uh, wonderful Christmas uh, with you and your family and all the worship services, and um, we will talk to you soon. Hey, you too, Nick. Thanks. See you soon. Bye.